The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, um, so we have been going through, if you haven't been with us uh, the whole time, uh, we've been going through a study on cults and the occult. And the difference between the two, uh, one is kind of more a typically a formalized group that uh, meets on a regular occasion and things like that and has more of kind of a religion-type feel to it. Um, I know that's not a great definition, but then the other is, at least how we experience it, the other, the occult, tends to be dabbling with uh, what we might call dark arts or participation with uh, demonic forces and things like that. Those occultic practices may not be a formalized religion of sorts. They may not be necessarily a particular worship service you go to every week or something like that, but it typically happens around seances and typical special events and things like that that they, they gather around. And, um, and so we've been looking at both of those things. And I, I think for the most part, though, when you get to the occult, there are obviously aspects of the occult that you've never, maybe never heard of before, don't know anybody who participates in things like that, or maybe you've heard kind of, you know, on the fringes through TV shows and things like that, maybe. Um, And then some of the cults that we've looked at, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and we've touched on some Hinduism and as it it, uh, is experienced in various places in, in our culture, uh, you may have some experience with that in the sense of you may know some people or you may have had Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. Um, and, but all of those are fairly well-defined. We, we, uh, we know that they exist. We may even drive past some places where they worship and you know what that, that place is. Um, and we've kind of been able to explain some of their ideologies and beliefs. But... I kind of saved a few sessions at the very end as sort of wild cards that, that and I kind of do that sometimes whenever we do a, a, a study like this. I'm, I kind of get there and I, and I kind of feel out what needs to happen next and think through it that way. Well, as we've gone through cults and the occult, I've had conversations with various, you know, ones of you offline and things like that. And there's been a lot of questions uh, in regards to a lot of the people in our culture that associate themselves with the name of Jesus, but their practices are, let's say, at best, a little off, a little weird to us, and at worst, absolutely way off kilter, right? Um, Heretical and not at all Christian. And all of them kind of get I think probably your frustration as well as mine, they all sort of get lumped into the basket of Christian anytime the news talks about any of it. Well, there's this Christian denomination that says, you know, LGBTQ agendas are fine, and you're at home listening to that going, what? No, that's not what, you know, Christianity teaches, you know? And so it, it, there, there needs to be a category for that group that is, seems to be attaching itself to the name of Christ and yet is off. But as I started thinking about it, there's several different wings of that. There, there are uh, groups that are in a very liberal direction that are attaching themselves to the name of Christ that we would say that's not at all Christian. And then there are probably more on the conservative end that are attaching themselves to the name of Christ that are definitely have some red flags about them. And I, and I think there's a need to kind of define what is common amongst all of those that are attaching themselves to the name of Christ but are not really uh, proclaiming Christ the way we would say Christ needs to be proclaimed. And so that's kind of where we're headed today as we sort of talk about those and then obviously we'll entertain questions as, as we get to the end. Um, do I have my keynote up? Sorry, Robert. It's past 9.30. You told me 9.30, so. <laughs> we got it. Hold on. It's here, here, here it comes. It's coming. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, you're ruining where I'm going, though. So, <laughs> just, you're, you're spoiling the ending. <laughs> Don't watch a movie with Timothy. <laughs> Don't worry, they make it out fine. <laughs> oh, what? Oh. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, as, as we've seen in the course up to this point, there are many different cults and uh, occultic practices that present themselves as opposition to the true bride of Christ purchased with his blood some 2,000 years ago. Now, I think this is worth noting because, you know, like I, I, I mentioned here a number of times that. Uh, I had a conversation with some some Mormons not that long ago, and the the conversation was relatively cordial at first, where they came to me, they presented themselves to me as kind of like, um, we're your brothers, we're your friends, we're you know, oh you're a Christian, we're we're similar, you and I, until I asked the question, are you trying to evangelize me? At which point they obviously had to say, yeah. And why is that? Because we're actually not brothers. We're actually not uh, friends. We're actually not the same. We are different. And once they can own that and, and kind of take the mask off, you see what they really do think is that they are in opposition to what is out there um, globally speaking. And, and that's common amongst most of the cults and occultic practices that we've seen. Some of them outright, uh, Tom talked about a couple weeks ago, the Church of Satan, Satanic ideology, uh, Wiccanism, all kinds of uh, other occultic practices are all out there and overt about the fact that we are not Christian. And this is Christianity, the Christian church as you have seen it, is not true and is not right. And so they present themselves as opposition. And for, for those groups, it's helpful to have the historic, some of the historic creeds. Not all of them, but there are some, especially some of the very early ones, that are designed for that purpose. That you are, that's why they were produced. It's a clear statement of what Christians believe. And that doesn't mean that those creeds don't need some modern terminology or things like that because you've got to update the terms so that we understand them in the modern world. But the creeds were designed as a very clear statement that's supposed to refute particular heretical teachings that was a statement for Christians in the pews to be able to take, remember, think through, and to be able to use in response to someone who is arguing otherwise. That's its intention. So when somebody comes to, you know, the uh, uh, Christian in, in the year 400 and knocks on their door and presents to them Arian theology or any other kind of theology that would say Jesus was either only a man or Jesus was not a man, they could take those creeds, those very clear statements, present them to them and say, this is what I believe. This is what I know to be true. This is what the church teaches about Jesus. And it was able to refute, you know, Arianism or a, a host of other false doctrines. And what we've seen over the course of, you know, the last 10 weeks is that even the cults that we encounter today, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and the like, they still have that common thread behind them that has been true for the last 2,000 years. It's always the same kind of thing. Subvert the name of Christ in one way or another. He's either gonna, they're either going to change him to be only a man, or they're going to change him to be not a man. Either way, it seeks to undermine the person and work of Jesus so that he is not your Savior. That's essentially what they're working towards. The result of that that follows is you now have to be your own Savior. You have to do the work. You have to accompany anything that Christ said or did with all of your stuff. And if it's good enough, then you'll be saved. That's essentially the message that's been for 2,000 years in all occultic and cult practices. And so the creeds were designed as a, as a refutation, a way of refuting that, those, those claims with who Christ is. 
And so some of those are kind of obvious. You can, you can see, oh, you're a Mormon. Oh, you are Jehovah's Witness. Or you're Wiccan. Or you're this, that, or the other. But there, there is, as Timothy kind of points out, or spoils, whichever one you want to say, uh, <laughs> there uh, is a, a, a bit of a more sinister form of cultic practice that ensnares a lot of Christians because it masquerades as a true church. And here's the really sinister part about it. This is, this is where it gets very difficult to put them all in one category that we're going to try. Is that sometimes you might even hear in the church the preaching of the true gospel. It, 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 there are times where, and not all of them, but there are times where you might hear them say something about Jesus or something like that that is true. Or you might even see behaviors that they do that are true, even to the heart of the gospel. So you might see a church that takes up the behavior of compassion ministry, of feeding the homeless and things like this, and they do so in the name of Christ. This is what Jesus would want us to do. And you, you look at that and go, well, yeah, I mean, that's true. He does say that, and we should do things like that. However, uh, it, it, and some of them are even... Uh, as we're going to see in just a minute, are even more severe than that, where a lot of the preaching might be true. And you, you get drawn in and you think, yeah, that is, that, that is true. And then only to have sort of the bait and switch uh, presented to you at the end. So the problem that is presented, the danger of these kinds of churches that present themselves as Christian churches, but actually have different agendas than what Christ has in the Scriptures, um, is one, that their proximity to the true gospel sometimes, like their actual the, the closeness or the accuracy sometimes that they present the gospel with, um, is so close that the aberrant teaching, the teaching that, is, that deviates from the norm, that teaching that is off-kilter, we would say, is sometimes hidden from view. You don't necessarily see it. it doesn't, it's not on a billboard outside their church, or it's not on a sign or, or something like that. It's sort of underneath uh, everything, and you don't find it out until maybe later, if at all. But it's actually there the entire time. Um, second, the distinguishing features that make them dangerous are sometimes not easy to identify and are even, at times, debatable. Um, there was a, a podcast that came out uh, some time ago about a particular church in the Northwest um, where the pastor was accused of um, basically abuse of, of, a, of, of the congregation. And, um, and so it, what, what you find, though, is even in a church like that, where the pastor was eventually fired and things like that, and, and uh, well, the church sort of disintegrated to a degree anyway. Um, even in a church like that, you'll find people who are supporters and who are going, what's wrong? It doesn't seem like anything's wrong. There's nothing wrong here. But when the stories are told, you hear a lot of the cancerous things that, were, that are going on the entire time. But that's what I mean, is like even amongst the parishioners or the people or the members of the pew that, that are are sitting there in the church listening to it every day and hearing the same things and seeing the same things, they're going, ah, I mean, was he, was he not? Was he really, you know, abusive? Is that, how do you define that? And, you know, so it can be kind of this little, uh, uh, sometimes a little bit debatable. That's part of what makes it so dangerous. And then the genuine Christian, this is, this is obviously the, the hardest part about it, is the genuine Christian may be a member of the church and a church that, participates in, teaches these kinds of things uh, for many years, and then it evolves quickly into this. So you may know people who were members of churches that uh, were, you know, maybe not necessarily teaching Scripture every single Sunday or something like that, and then, but okay, it's fine though with what we're doing, the pattern is pretty normal, and then all of a sudden LGBTQ is affirmed, you know. And in their churches, and they're going, wait, what? <laughs> when did we do this? You know, 
And, uh, and, but then there's, there's other forms of that, too, that it starts to evolve. Uh, maybe a particular uh, pastor deter, uh, uh, gathers so much allegiance and so much uh, fealty to him that, uh, it, that it becomes an abusive situation. And it's not an overnight thing. It, 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 it slowly evolves. And you've got tons of members that are connected to that church and, and in that church and, and all of a sudden kind of going, well, what do we do? Right, so it, it, it's it's not something. It's something that's hard to look out for because of how uh, murky sometimes the waters can be, and how not clear sometimes it can be uh, as it evolves over time. So what I what I want to do is kind of look at some characteristics of churches that are at least heading in that direction, where you can kind of go, that's a red flag. Those are things that I I think we should look out for as Christians, and we should know, are there perhaps warning our friends, or should we ever find ourselves in, the, in a search for a church? That that might be something that we're looking out for. I don't want to be, you know, a part of this. Not everything, I think this is the, another hard part as I'm kind of describing this, not everything that we go into, not every church that participates in these, would I say, that's a cult, you're right? But it is, we're, we're going to say, it's everything from a red flag to this, this is not, you know, a great practice, I don't think, and, and this is very concerning. All the way to, this is full-blown devilish theology. So it, it's kind of everything in between. Red flags all the way up to, this is not even a church anymore, right? So we kind of want to look at what is common amongst those and what sort of leads from just the red flag all the way to totally off the deep end. The first, and I think, we're gonna, I'm going to try to start with the the clearest examples, the, the, most, uh, the biggest red flags, and then move our way to things that sometimes can be a little bit more ambiguous. The most concerning but, but reasonably obvious characteristics of churches that have become or are becoming cults is a clear deviation from Scripture. Um, this means that the word is used sparingly and only in verses or passages that support the point of the pastor. Um, I, and I want to read scripture that, that uh, is kind of the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. And I think this is really important because he kind of sets the agenda for the church as Timothy is leading this church in Ephesus. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. There's an agenda that Paul is setting for Timothy. You take that word that you've got and you preach it. That is your job. That is what you're supposed to do. The, the thing that I want to draw out here that you'll see as, a, it's certainly a red flag. Maybe many churches will do this, and that doesn't necessarily make them a cult, but it certainly is concerning, is that the, the Word of God, especially in the sermon, but throughout the service, is used very sparingly. And you'll find you can, you can kind of evaluate either a sermon or evaluate uh, you know, much of what goes on in the worship service, but a sermon is probably the most glaring. You can evaluate the direction of that sermon relatively easily. Was the, the, did the pastor come up to the pulpit with a topic in mind, this is what I'm going to talk about, and, and then use the Bible as supporting that topic that he's preaching on. It's, it's a different orientation of a sermon. Or did the text that's in front of him determine what the topic was that day? This is what we're going to talk about because this is what the, the Word is bringing up. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that someone has to preach through books of the Bible, straight through the book of this, that, or the other. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But uh, it, it, it does mean that we're not standing up there at the pulpit going, you know, here's the problem going on in the world, and this is what that verse says about that. And then here's another issue that I want to talk about, and then here's what that verse says about it. And we've all seen the difference in those sermons, but it's sometimes hard to quantify exactly what that is until you see it. The The topic is generated in, the, in that case from the pastor in his study, and then he's looking for the proofs in the Bible that support exactly what he's saying. 
So you'll find that there's a deviation from Scripture, stepping aside of Scripture, and those passages or verses are used to support the point of the pastor. And you'll find this in a lot of um, prosperity preaching churches and things like that. Those verses are, are kind of used as support text. Um, these churches may also go as, well, I'm going to call them churches, but you, you understand kind of quotations. These churches may also go as far as claiming that the Bible is not inerrant in its original manuscripts or infallible in its teaching. Sometimes they may explain that the Bible is the Word of God. The, they'll say, this is kind of a phrase, the Word of God, but not the words of God. It's kind of a little, uh, you know, what do you want to call that? Jiu-jitsu to get out of the... Out of the, in seminary, we called it the gymnastegesis. It's, the, it's the, the way you kind of jump and twist over a text to kind of get around it. Um, but essentially, Paul's really clear. The Bible is really clear several times in Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, uh, for, for reproof, for correction. Uh, Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 16-20, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice born, was born to Him in, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But then he goes on and he says um, uh, in 19 or 20, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is, he's, he's making clear, like, the word that we have in front of us, and even the word that we're giving to you as apostles that we witnessed, is true. It's inerrant. It is infallible. It is, it is true. And there is, in, typically, in, it may go as far in some of these churches as just outright denying that the Bible that's in front of you is authoritative in any way. What I'm saying is, it can be that far, and that's a little more obvious. It may not be quite that far. It may be, we use the word sparingly in the service. You're going to hear little of the Bible today, and more of what I think about this, and then I'm going to kind of, I'm going to touch the Bible like a rock skipping across a pond. You know, it's like, I'm just going to touch on a few verses here and there, and you're going to be flipping a lot and things like that normally. Um, so it can be really anything in between. One is a, ver is a red flag and is concerning, but it leads eventually to the Bible becoming, you know, not authoritative for you to listen to. Go ahead. It's similar, but not exactly. arguments that show that compared to Homer and others, it was very, very limited in what we know, but we don't know exactly what the original manuscript was. Um, yeah, so did everybody hear that? No, you couldn't hear that in the back. So Doug says, so some of the arguments that are presented often are, well, we don't have the original manuscripts. And you'll notice that I say up there, what the claim of Christians is that the Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts. So what we're saying is what Peter, what is reflected by Peter's statement here, or what is reflect, reflected by uh, Paul's statement, is that what we're saying to you is the words breathed out by God. Okay. Um, now, what we actually have is not the original manuscripts. We have copies of you know the Bible throughout time and things like that that people have taken copious notes to to copious or a lot of time to be able to preserve. Now the um, what, we, what we are saying about the inerrancy of Scripture is that when Paul wrote it, there was no errors in it. He didn't make a math mistake or any kind of error of any kind. Since then, in copies, we know of things that, are, that are, were wrong. A pronoun gets twisted here or there, and we can see where that error happened and what century it happened, and we can trace back to what, in most cases, 99 0.9% of all cases, we can trace back to what the original thing was. So Doug's question was, so then some people make an argument, well, we don't have the original manuscripts. And, um, and so, you know, you know, what do you say about that? What's interesting about even the Bible itself 
is that Paul, when he's speaking to his Gentile audiences, his churches, when he's writing to them, he doesn't actually use the Hebrew Scriptures. He uses the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures to quote to them what the Bible says. Um, we are not Muslims. We don't believe what Islam does about the Quran. The Quran is only authoritative inerrant, infallible, in its original language, which is a specific version of Arabic. And if it's not in that, it's not the same kind of, of Quran that, it, that is in the original languages. God has allowed His Word to be translated, to be put in the language of common man, to be read by every single person, and is okay with saying that it is it is infallible, that is able to reprove, to teach, to rebuke, just like Paul would use the Greek scriptures, <laughs> uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, so we use translations of various texts. So I would say what Paul's saying there to Timothy, he actually is employing the same way that we are, are employing. Does that make sense? And there's a lot that could be said about this, and this is not obviously on text criticism, but go ahead. Sure. Yeah. You're right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right, right. Now, I'm not wanting to discount anything that they're saying, but text criticism is an area we could spend 13 weeks on, and we need to move on. So, um, all right. So, uh, as is common amongst all of the cults that we've studied up to this point, these so-called churches may also deviate from the person and work of Jesus. And I say may also, well, you'll see it in a little bit later, but they typically do deviate from the person and work of Jesus, but, but it may not be so obvious. They may even call his death uh, less than propitiatory, which means satisfying God's wrath. It, it, there's certainly a lot of things that Jesus' death accomplished. Did it show us love? Yes, it showed us love. But it was more than that. It was propitiatory. It's certainly not less than propitiatory. And some people want to take away the wrath of God as being appeased on the cross as though it was not real. And so uh, they'll sometimes spiritualize his resurrection or um, his, um, his human nature, which uh, those scriptures that are there clearly call Christ's death propitiatory. Um, so Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood. Um, Hebrews 2.17, he is a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. John, 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, so some will not only change the word, but change the person and work of Jesus so that his death becomes less than propitiation. He came to show us the way. He came to, you know, things like, they'll use phrases like that. He came to uh, show us what love is. Um, among those red flags may also be a claim to truth that they and few others share. This normally includes the elevation of one particular translation of the Bible while excoriating all others. This gets a little bit into what we were talking about just a minute ago, and demonizing all other churches as sinful. So what you tend to find, there's two kind of parts of this, is churches that may be on the way to cultism, or all the way into the cult, is that their church is the one and only solution for the world's problems. Every other church out there is, you know, wayward and sinful or going to hell or whatever. And along with that typically comes, they all use this, these other translations of the Bible and we use the only one that is, that is you know, available or that is, that is good and authoritative and, and valuable. And... Uh, sometimes that translation is their own translation. 
right? And sometimes it is a translation that is commonly accessible to everyone, but the point is, those are commonalities between them and cultic practices. We see even in Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, we see that they don't only, they're not just born in a vacuum, they actually have some sort of translation of an alternative scripture that becomes authoritative. And uh, we can even see this in some of the churches that are leaning in that direction or heading in that direction that should be tremendous red flags for us, is that there's no other church out there that's doing it right. Only here is doing it right. Everybody else is, is wayward and falling off the wagon, so to speak. Um, now, so those, are, those range from pretty clear to maybe just a little less clear, but you can kind of see those, and you may have seen those. And may, you're maybe even thinking of places that you know or something like that. But let's move to a little bit more hard to distinguish. Equally concerning, often less obvious, is a strong emphasis on special doctrines that are outside Scripture. Historically new, maybe, uh, or perhaps even taken out of context. So there's an emphasis on a particular uh, doctrine that defines us as you know our church that is special. It might be, like I say, new in that I can't find anybody throughout history that's actually believed this. You know, that's concerning that n no other Christians for 2,000 years have actually believed this, and, and this is what you're promoting. Um, or perhaps they're doctrines that are, that are predicated on one verse in Scripture, and when you put that verse in the context, it's not actually saying that, right? It's sort of, it's taken out of context. This may include things, in, when I say this, you'll probably go, oh, I, I know what you're talking about. Um, this may include things like the suspicious financial conduct operating on a doctrine referred to as seed of faith. Have you ever heard this before? Seed of faith is, um, is sort of a movement where you kind of take your money, your, the uh, member is encouraged to take their money and sort of put it in the offering plate as a seed of faith. What is it you want from God? And if you want that and you have faith that God will provide that, you take your seed money, which is your kind of down payment on belief in His promise, you put it in the plate as it passes or the box or whatever, and then God will return that to you tenfold or twentyfold or thirtyfold. And if people don't believe it, you keep going up fiftyfold, you know, and you just keep going until it becomes a, a deal too sweet to pass up. And... Um, and so then you put, you put the seed money out there, and then it returns to you. And what happens, though, is typically the doctrines in that church uh, are driven around a, a fuzzy math form of accounting that, that allows the person who's actually getting the money from the people in the pew to sort of hide the transactions that he's doing. So you'll find like two different budgets, let's say. There's the church budget that everybody sees, and then there's the budget underneath that is kind of, this is what we spend. And we, and all of a sudden, a pastor has a helicopter? You know, how did he get a helicopter? You know, uh, like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's stuff like that. You know, it's, it's like, wait, a, something, something is fishy going on here, you know, and uh, you can kind of see it. But a lot of times it, it's this special doctrine that is brought up that you go, seed of faith, or, you know, where is that in Scripture? And it's, well, this is, this is what we think Scripture teaches because of this, that, and the other, and, and the connections are all pretty loose, and, and you never really see the train of, of thought. Um, others, and this is on kind of maybe another side, uh, others become overly focused on end-times prophecies, spending pulpit time to discuss recent events in the news, or perhaps even going as far as setting a date for the return of Christ. So it, it, based on you know these different verses in Revelation, he's coming back on on this date, and we're all we're going to go gather together on a mountaintop to go to go see. But all of that is is actually completely opposed to Scripture. It's it's you know very obviously in there Matthew twenty four thirty six. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but the Father only. That that passage, that verse, actually precedes an entire discourse that Jesus gives on telling the disciples, get to work. Don't worry about that day. 
Don't think about that day. You're not going to know. You're not going to be able to guess it. You won't know when it's going to happen. You're not going to be able to read the tea leaves. You're not going to be able to do any of that kind of stuff. You're not going to be able to read the news and, and associate that to a day and pin it down to when Jesus is coming. But they ignore that altogether. And the special doctrine is, here's the date. We're going to gather together and we're all going to you know, celebrate that time. And I can't even calculate the number of times we've been wrong. Right? So... Um, so it, you can kind of see it happening in, in multiple ways. There are also times where you'll have um, groups that tend to promote political candidates. Uh, they'll even host campaign rallies. They'll go even as far as just blatantly just telling the congregation, this is who you vote for. Um, and, and, you know... Uh, spend a lot of the time in, in sermons like teaching on, you know, recent events and this is what happened and happened into this political ca- uh, campaign. You see this all over. I mean, you see this on, on the left and on the right. You see this in the promotion of, I remember churches that were dedicated to Barack Obama's rallies and I remember churches that were dedicated to Trump's rallies and everywhere and in between. But it, it turns the church into sort of this political organization more than it is actually teaching on Jesus and teaching the Bible. Go ahead. Right, being there, yeah, yeah. So he, Jeremy brings up there's the uh, churches that promote like prayer closets and promote like uh, what was the other one you said? Oh, hysterical laughing, hysterical laughter. Not only is in that, but is also falls in like the charismatic uh, movement. And you'll find some charismatic are a lot in this as well. Is and seed of faith is almost extri- explicitly charismatic, uh, as far as I've seen it anyway. And so there'll be people, churches, that gather together in their worship service and they just promote laughter, laughing. And if you've ever, you can look up a YouTube clip of this and you'll just see them, they're just literally laying in the floor and they are just, everybody is just hysterically laughing. And yeah, it's, it's, it is a cultic practice. It's, and the way that you kind of go, that's, that is not only a red flag, that is a cultic practice is that it, that it is a major deviation from Scripture. It's a special doctrine that is not in there at all, and that this defines how we, how we worship. Um, I, I would hope that when you're here, you can see the, the things that we're doing in the worship service. You can draw a straight line to where those things are commanded in Scripture. Read the Scriptures together. Confess sin to one another. Um, you know, sing praises to the Lord, you know, and... The, hopefully the sermon is driven from the text and not from my own head, you know, uh, things like that. So, but that would be altogether different than what you're going to find in a cultic worship service that should send up major red flags and, and cause you to run, you know, screaming from the building and take everybody you can with you, is that the practices that are done there are nowhere in Scripture. Where is the laughing service in Scripture? Right? It's, it's not there. And I think that should be the, the major red flag. Nor is, actually, using a service for political candidates is probably in Scripture, but it's not in a positive way. Right? It's in a, it's in a very satanic way, and this kind of fills revelation. Go ahead. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to come to that in just a second. <laughs> so now we're going to move just a little bit further, which these, these get kind of like hard to necessarily, um, you can see them obviously in the extreme, but they, they sometimes can get a little murky. Uh, concerning uh, is the elevation of a leader or leaders to an inappropriate place of authority where congregants must pledge fealty in order to be accepted. Uh, this may coincide with like lavish gifts, demonstration of loyalty. I even heard of one church where every where the pastor was uh, brought up on criminal charges, and the members of the church had to pledge their loyalty over and above the justice system by kneeling down in front of him in the worship service. So that would be an extreme version that you're not going to see all the time. But there's a kind of a pledge of fealty to the leader and or even sometimes a group of leaders that is sort of a gratuitous proof. It's, you know, um, it's, yeah, gratuitous. And I want to get, I'll get to that in a second, how to distinguish between the two. 
Um, frequently, these groups will discourage critical thinking. So we're not going to open the Bible and actually like look at what it says and ask questions about it and think through it and, and kind of understand its connections and its meaning and all those kinds of things. Um, we, instead, intellectual endeavor is going to be pushed aside. Don't, don't, you know, you got to turn off your brain, you know, to be here. Or you got to, if you're, if you're engaging that, that realm, that's of the devil and that kind of thing. Uh, you can't have a critically thinking mind and ask legitimate questions about the text and have conversations over those. The critical thinking piece has to be turned off. And of course, that has to be the case in order for the fealty issue to actually, actually hold water. You know, you have to be not thinking. Um, Further, the congregants may be turned against those who resist, sometimes even encouraging families to disassociate uh, from other dissenting family members, like inside your own family where you can't talk to them anymore. They're, they're you know, part of the devil. You can't have any association with them anymore. Come away. Now, I, I brought these two scriptures up because I want to show this, and it, I think maybe sometimes we may not talk about this part of it. Um, sometimes they'll use these sorts of... Uh, verses as, as maybe a proof. So you get to like Hebrews 13, 7. Obey your leaders and submit to them, right? Which is a, is a I mean, that's, you can see that in the scriptures. The, the scriptures encourage the congregation to submit to the leaders of the church and things like that. And so you go, okay, well, there it is. And so when they want to re- be really abusive, obey and submit, right? And they kind of do that like a husband might do to his wife in an abusive relationship. Okay, but then, if you look at 1 Timothy 5.19, he says, Don't admit a charge against an elder except, what? On the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, the reason I want to highlight that is because Paul is saying, elders in the church, pastors in the church, can be wrong. Right? We don't want to get them in a place where they're railroaded because they're telling people hard things. And so one person comes out and says, well, he said this, you know, whatever. But Paul is saying, look, if multiple people witness this and it's abusive, then admit the charge, right? So sometimes it can be overlooked as, as we're, just, we're talking about what not to do, but he's also saying what to do. If there is a charge brought up on an elder on the basis of two or three witnesses, admit the charge. And so uh, this is contrary, again, to Scripture, is um, this kind of idea of, you know, you have to submit in all cases, in all places, uh, to the leadership of your church. If there's abusive situations, then they can admit a charge on two or three witnesses, according to the Bible. Um, All right, so it's historically common for the name of Christ to be co-opted by those who actually want little to do with following Christ. This usually coincides with altering or retranslating the text to fit their narrative of discipleship or taking only the words of Jesus in the Gospels as carrying any kind of authority. So, typically when we get to that point where there's just outright abuse of the text, they're saying, well, the words of Paul, those are the words of Paul. Oh, well, that's the Old Testament. Oh, well, that's the words of John. We use only the red letters, right? <laughs> we use only the words that, and I'm like, who, who wrote the red letters? <laughs> oh, it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Also, when you go to Revelation, do you listen to those red letters? Because <laughs> Jesus speaks in there too. No, 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 not those. You know, not, not those red letters where he condemns a lot of things uh, that, you know, he, he, they say he doesn't say in the, in the Gospels. But typically there's sort of a, um, an altering, maybe a retranslating or things like that to fit a particular narrative. And where you'll see this a lot in our culture nowadays are churches that are attempting to approve of so-called same-sex marriage, transgenderism, a host of other sexual perversions um, that are explicitly identified as sin in the Scripture. So you go to Leviticus, or you, where, where it's called out, or you go to um, maybe uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy. Um, you go to places like that, and they go, oh, well, that's Paul. Oh, well, that's the Old Testament. Let's go to the words of Jesus. Where does Jesus condemn that? Well, Jesus upholds a 
traditional standard sexual ethic that was common amongst Jews at the time, right? So, and he says that, says as much. But the point is, they kind of eliminate those things. Where is it explicitly called out? In the Gospels itself, right? Um, and this is normally explained... This is normally explained as a progression from Scripture. That we, are, we, we have progressed beyond this you know, ancient text of you know, 2,000 years ago. Uh, it's a progression from beyond Scripture. And so, while there are many new versions of cultic practice that glom onto the name of Christ... The common pitfalls of all cults are consistent throughout time. So even in these where it is really ambiguous, or maybe sometimes ambiguous, maybe you get in there and you're like, something seems a little off here. I don't, I don't understand why you're, you know, you, know, you know, badgering us about this particular thing that I don't find in Scripture. Um, but they're all consistent throughout time in some respects. They, they seek to redefine Christ's person and work and typically change scriptures to scratch their itching ears. And you'll find this as, as common as they get closer to the cultic practice, and beyond even just merely red flags, it's now like this is full-fledged. Um, that's typically what we find happening. Questions? Let me deal with questions. Is it a question or is it a comment? I've learned to ask. <laughs> I just want to make sure there's no questions first before. Okay. Question. Bob. Right. Yeah, it, so Bob asks about the delineation when we're working in you know, particular areas or working with particular people. Um, an example of that might be, well, I would say the answer to that, if I just give a kind of a very basic answer that probably needs more fleshing out, is um, it depends on what the work is that's being done. Um, so, for instance, you might find yourself outside of an abortion clinic uh, protesting the abortion or maybe even praying for women that walk in. And you might find yourself outside of that abortion clinic with Catholics and Mormons who are both there for the same reason. We want to save the unborn. In which case, you can see that there's some commonality between you and them for that same cause. You might be there for slightly different reasons. You're definitely there for different reasons between you and the Mormons, for sure. So the Mormons are wanting to save the baby in the womb because that is a soul that needs to go into a body. And to kill it is to rob the soul of its body. And you are there because God said this baby inside this mother's womb is created in the image of God and you cannot kill it. That's murder. And so y'all are there for slightly different reasons. And so there may not be common cause in prayer. There may not be common cause in uh, preaching and things like that. But there might be common cause in standing there urging women not to kill their children. Okay, so there's some common cause there. But where the, the cause that you're seeking to, to do involves discipleship of young people in, uh, in following Christ, now there's much greater scrutiny that I must apply to the people that I work with. Because we're actually training and equipping saints for the work of ministry. And what ministry are we training them for? I have no common cause in that with Mormons. I don't. I don't really have any common cause there with Catholics either. Because there's fealty to the Pope that is preached and stated outright you know, in the Catholic Church that I do not agree with and I don't want to disciple somebody into, right? So there, there is a much greater scrutiny depending on the nature of the ministry that I'm, I'm partaking in. Where it comes to the gospel, we must teach truth. And, you know, there may be people that I disagree with, you know, theologically on different matters, but those theological disagreements have been around for 2,000 years. We've been debating them and they're um, you know, even within our church, they, they're represented. And so that's fine, you know, but 
the disagreements that are doctrinally uh, totally askew, I, I've got to be very um, careful about how I do that. So, okay, we got two. We got. We really got to go. But go ahead. Quick, quick so comment. In, in that light, then would you comment about uh, what's really common here is community bias. Have people teaching that they have very different views than the church. So. Um, Doug asked about a specific group that's in our, our town. I, I, you know, to be honest with you, I know some of our ladies do community, but I would say I don't know tons about, like, you know, all that's taught there or anything like that. What I understand is what's been reported to me is that it, it tends to be a Bible study uh, that's kind of open to inquiry, that where the ladies are kind of open to be able to bring their own perspective and, ar- and argue for it and things like that. I think most of the views that I've heard of, at least, that are there are even represented within our church. Um, I don't know much more than that, so I'm, I'm afraid I couldn't comment too much on, on something like that, other than to say, look, if, if the doctrines that are promoted and presented are errant doctrines, then it might be a red flag. But that's where I think you bring pastors in, you kind of go, listen to this. Is this right? Is this, you know, what, am, I, am I what I'm hearing here is wrong? No, I'm saying you bring your, your pastor in, you kind of go, uh, you know, is this, is this right? It's not wrong to study the Bible with other people, you know, but you just have to be careful, I think, about some of it. So, um, all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to gather together. and It, it is difficult to think through all these things and, and to kind of know where red flags are. And uh, Satan can be so crafty sometimes. And, and then we also don't want to criticize uh, people who are doing your work and... and um, may just disagree with us. Um, so we, we pray for your help to just be able to distinguish that uh, as, as Christians, as a church even, that we would not um, teach against somebody that's, that's doing uh, genuinely what the, the work that you have put them here to do, and, and at the same time uh, also be very wise about how we go about um, thinking through sound doctrine and, and who we participate with and and um, how we train new believers in, in Scripture. Uh, we want to be very careful about that, and we pray that you would give us help in doing that. There's always going to be disagreement within the church and amongst the church body, and there's always going to be disagreement amongst uh, people that are doing uh, good work of evangelism. So we just pray for your help in being able to walk in wisdom in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.